Hello and welcome to the Issue Spotter podcast. My name is Christina Lee and I'm the senior online editor for the Journal of Law and Public Policy at Cornell. And today we are really excited to welcome you to our first podcast ever. So welcome and thank you so much for tuning in. I'm going to turn it over to our online associate, Trevor Thompson, who will introduce our first guest. Thanks again. Thanks, Christina. So yeah, my name is Trevor Thompson. I'm a 2L here at Cornell Law and very excited to get the podcast rolling for the Issue Spotter. Uh, so our guest today, who we're very excited to have on, is Ankush Kardori. Ankush is an attorney and former federal prosecutor based in Washington, D.C. Until January of this year, he specialized in financial fraud and white-collar crime in the fraud section of the Criminal Division of the Justice Department. Before that, he worked at a law firm in New York City and clerked for a judge in the Southern District of New York. He has written on white-collar crime in the Justice Department for the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Politico Magazine, the New York Review of Books, the New Republic, and Slate. He graduated from Columbia Law School. So thanks so much for joining us today, Ankush. Thank you for having me. Of course. So... For listeners who aren't familiar, can you briefly explain what white collar crime is and how its prosecution differs from the prosecution of other crimes? Um, And maybe just a couple quick examples of what is a white collar crime? Yes, that's a very good question. It's sort of a deceptively simple question. Um, It's it's a little bit more complicated, I think, than, than people often think. Originally, when the coin was termed by criminologists back in like the 1930s, they referred to crimes committed by kind of high social status people in the course of their job, right? So like a banker, you know, defrauding a client. Um, That has sort of become uh, reduced or, well, you consider that that is a little difficult to operationalize, right? Like what is a high status person in the economy and society? And so these days, I think colloquially, at least, you know, when, um, people are referring to it in the news or when r- people are running studies on kind of the directional movement of financial crime and enforcement over time, they tend to refer to financial crimes. So that would be things like, you know, financial fraud, wire fraud, insurance fraud, um, antitrust, securities frauds, um, that sort of thing. Um, there is a lot of debate about whether or not that is an adequate definition um, or even whether it entirely conforms to, um, you know, the term as most people kind of understand it. Because I think one thing that it doesn't capture that I think a lot of people would put under the umbrella of white collar crime, colloquially speaking, is, um, for instance, Michael Cohen, right? Michael Cohen's right. Um, lives to Congress, right? Um, or Roger Stone, right? Um, and that, you know, we regard more as kind of um, elite social crime not necessarily on the job crime, not necessarily financial crime, but a crime by social elites. So I think, you know, it's very useful to actually flesh this out because I think often when you are reading stories on the subject, including my own, I try to be clear on this, um, you know, people um, sometimes are not sufficiently clear about what they mean and what you mean by the term can, you know, significantly affect kind of um, if you're diagnosing a problem or what sorts of issues Um, you see in the sort of enforcement landscape and how you might go about rectifying them. Um, In terms of, you know, how they differ from other forms of crimes, like, you know, if we set aside kind of the freestanding kind of elite concept, crime concept, which is sort of amorphous, right? 
and focus maybe like on financial frauds, which I think is the core uh, of what most people most people regard as white collar crime, uh, uh, at least casually. Um, you know, there's a couple of obvious things. One is they, they tend to focus on financial information, right? Financial data, banking information, whether it's a wire fraud or a bank fraud or securities fraud, um, market data, um, maybe if it's an insider trading case, right? Um, they tend to be more data and paper intensive, you know, so there's not wire. I mean, occasionally there are things like wiretaps. There were in some insider trading cases in, in the 2010s, but that was very unusual. But typically speaking, there are cases that are often built around pa paper, right? So emails, financials, things like that. And, you know, those are the big dissimilarities, I would say. I mean, I think in terms of how prosecutors approach these cases, there are some major similarities. You know, generally speaking, if you're investigating like a large financial fraud um, conducted by a lot of people, whether it's at a bank or whether it's a very sort of crude online fraud, you know, the, the classic way into a, a scheme like that, and which is not that different from the classic way into an organized crime scheme or a drug conspiracy is to find someone at the lowest level of the organization, you know, tell them that they've got serious exposure, ideally kind of pin them and sort of you know, demonstrate to them that you've kind of got them dead to rights and then flip them and work your way up the organization. So there are some things that make white collar crime very different, but the fundamentals tend to be the same. Okay. That's, that's good to know. It's very interesting. So you wrote recently in the New Republic that white collar criminal enforcement is in its worst state in modern history. And the subject of your piece was that there's never been a better time to be a white collar criminal. Can you explain why that is? So I think it's helpful to distinguish like long-term from short-term causes. This is not a trend that began under Trump. And I you know, tried to be clear mm -hmm. about that. It's gotten markedly right, worse right. under Trump. But these are long-term problems that are a function of institutional issues. You know, there are resource constraints, very, very real resource constraints on the part of the federal government. You know, there are classic revolving door problems, right? When people get a lot of experience as a white collar prosecutor at some point, they tend to move back into the private sector. And as a result, there is an asymmetry in the experience levels of financial fraud prosecutors and the people defending them. And, you know, over the last 20 years or so, white collar defense has become a niche practice of law. It did not used to be that way. So now every major law firm has a white collar group has a stable of former federal prosecutors, you know, at the firm who specialize just in corporate investigations or financial frauds. That is a new, relatively new phenomenon. You know, over time, there's been a narrowing of certain statutes, which I think has been problematic for enforcement of white collar crime. Um, you know, a lot of people con conceive of sort of public corruption cases, right, as one of those non-financial elite crimes that we would call a white collar crime. You know, the Supreme Court has been fairly aggressive about narrowing um, the bribery statute um, not that long ago. And, you know, the honest services wire fraud statute, which we don't need to get into. But these were once core statutes that prosecutors used to go after public corruption. And it's become much harder as a result of Supreme Court's decisions under skilling in the case of honest services fraud and the McDonald case and the, in, in the case of um, the bribery of public corruption cases that rely, rely on official acts. So, you know, at the same time, technology has made 
financial fraud much easier, particularly international financial mm. fraud, right? You can spoof email addresses, you can get anonymized telephone lines, you can house your emails, your data overseas, which can make it very difficult for the US government to obtain them. Uh, it's relatively easy to get emails from a domestic service provider with a domestic presence and domestic servers. It's gradually, you know, progressively more complicated when you change any of those variables. And, you know, I think the economy, you know, it's been like this and it will continue to be like this has grown increasingly more fractured and opaque, right? So there are financial instruments that didn't exist 20, 30 years ago mm. in very, very esoteric formed uh, uh, parts wow. of the economy that are very, very difficult to understand now. So those are long-term trends. And, mm. you know, there have been questions of kind of political will, you know, I think a lot of people regard the Obama administration as having been, you know, not as good as they could have been on these issues. Uh, and I think there are justifiable mm -hmm. critiques of, of their work, but I do think they were sincere in their efforts to go after financial fraud and white collar crime. And I, and I think they came up short. And I think a lot of the people who worked on that in that area would, would freely admit that and have. So those are kind of the long-term trends. I think, as I said, it's gotten markedly worse under Trump. And right. You know, the piece that I wrote for The New Republic, I tried to sort of sketch that out. And I think that's a harder thing to look at in a sort of systematic way, right? Because the history is so mm -hmm. recent. But I think, you know, these attorneys general have not been that interested. Sessions and then Barr, they've had other priorities. Immigration, opioids, violent crime, you know, retribution for Russia Gate, right? If you're Bill Barr. So uh, as a result, there have been some policy changes, which I talk about in the piece. Fairly minor policy changes, but at the margins can have a, a real impact. There have been political interventions in some cases where political appointees have uh, narrowed or stopped investigations into residential mortgage-backed securities, cases that began under the Obama administration, and then an investigation into the overprescription of opioids at, at Walmart. And, you know, there have been a whole bunch of personnel issues that I get into in the piece that I think have been unique to this administration as well. Right, right. Yeah. In the piece, you mentioned that there are some underqualified attorneys now in the DOJ, and that's contributing a bit to the current state of it. That, of I think, is a fascinating part of this, actually, mm. because that is an unpopular thing to say. And I think most people who have left the department, for good reason, they want to remain on good terms with senior DOJ sure. officials. It's good for professionalism. It's good for their bottom line. Those relationships tend to be marketable in the private sector. But I've been really struck, I was struck by the number of people in senior positions in the political apparatus who had like no experience as federal prosecutors, a lot of them, no experience. And then as a result, there has been well, as a result of, I think, the fact that a lot of very well-qualified conservative former Justice Department officials did not want to work in the Trump Department, uh, Justice Department, um, there has been kind of a vacuum, right? Yeah. There are plenty of well-qualified, you know, politically oriented prosecutors from the George W. Bush administration and prior administrations who have not come back. And it's been very conspicuous. And as a result, there's been kind of a whole, right? A whole both at the political level and at the most senior career level that has been filled by people who I think you would not have found in those positions uh, in another administration. Right. So under another Trump presidency, 
can we expect some of these trends to persist? I think, I think so. I mean, I think it could get, it could get worse in certain respects. I mean, I think at least in the near term, it would appear to get better. And the reason why is because there has been such a collapse across the board in all federal law enforcement activity as a result of the pandemic. So, you know, if you look at kind of the numbers on white collar crime, it's been kind of a steady trend downward and then it just goes kind of off the cliff around March or April. But that sort of reduction was happening across the board just because law enforcement was not as active. People were not committing as many crimes, presumably. As a result, it got so low that I have to believe it will necessarily inch back up Mm -hmm. on an absolute basis. Even under a Trump administration, I kind of have to believe that would happen. But we're so far from the proper, I think, level of activity or its peak that it, it's still not a, it's not going to be enough. But, you know, I think generally speaking, I would not expect a significant change. I mean, this is not an issue that has attracted this administration's attention, perhaps by design. I mean, there are plenty of stories right. about Trump's taxes and corruption of his uh, potential corruption of his properties. And, you know, I think the tone from the top matters. I don't see anyone coming in, even replacing Bill Barr in a second Trump administration, or at least keeping a job <laughs> replacing Bill Barr if they mm-hmm. took an aggressive position on these issues. Right, right. So, and I, you mentioned also that there are some constraints on resources in the DOJ right now. Could you just briefly elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, this, is, this has been a problem forever. Okay. And in fact, I think the budget has held roughly steady, at least in the criminal division. So on that score, at least, I think it would be difficult to say much has changed under the Trump administration. Now, I think within that pot of, of money that the criminal division has, and the criminal division, I'm referring to the centralized prosecutors who work out of Washington, D.C., not the U.S. attorney's offices. But generally speaking, the budget, I think, has remained roughly steady. What they've chosen to spend that money on has differed. But the resource issue, I think, is just a long-term problem. And it's just a function of the fact that the government does not have enough money, does not have enough people to adequately police, I think, the global economy or, or at least our economy under even the best of circumstances. I think we could be doing a lot better, needless to say, um, even with our current uh, allocation of resources. But if we really wanted to tackle this problem aggressively, we would need under any administration a significant increase in financial resources, the number of prosecutors, the number of FBI agents working on these cases, financial analysts, maybe even economists, before we were even having a real discussion about sort of getting our arms around this problem in a real way. Right. So I guess this is a good transition into my next question. How might it change under a Biden administration? I mean, it seems like if there are, if constraints on resources have been a problem for a while, we could expect some of these problems to persist with a new attorney general and a Biden administration? So that is a very good question and a very challenging question, I think. I think it's unclear. I think it's legitimately unclear at the moment. You know, the question of financial fraud, white collar crime has not been a focus of Biden's campaign. And I get into this in a little, I got into this in a piece I wrote a few days ago for Politico, but- Yeah, um, that's great. I think that, yeah, I think that the Biden campaign has, for better or worse, and I'm not a political strategist, so my opining is not on that angle, but has been largely reactive to current events in the news. So their criminal justice platform has been focused on, you know, policing issues, racial inequity issues in the criminal justice system. 
And those are all perfectly good issues that need attention, even under ordinary circumstances and have, have attracted justifiably, unfortunately, more attention under, under the, uh, the current circumstances this year. But he doesn't really have and has never had sort of a systematic uh, white collar crime platform or financial fraud enforcement platform the way that, like Elizabeth Warren did when she was running mm. for president. So I, I kind of have to believe that, you know, any competent administration, frankly, even if it were another Republican Party nominee coming in, would have to be better just because things have gotten so bad. But I would expect there to be a, sort of a, at least sort of a drifting back to sort of a baseline level of sort of competence and interest in these issues, even if we didn't see like a concerted effort on the part of the Biden administration or Justice Department. Um, but I think a lot will depend on who the attorney general is, who the political appointees are. But, you know, I think candidly, I think what the sort of signals I've seen in the press and in sort of think tank community have given me some cause for concern. Mm. And so I read the Politico piece. It's a great piece. And in it, you discussed that you think that this should be, or of course, you know, feel free to, to disagree if I don't characterize this correctly, but that it should be more, the issue should be more of, of a concern for the average American because these financial fraud issues affect millions of Americans. You mentioned at one point that there was a scheme recently to defraud state unemployment agencies using stolen personal information from Americans, cost states hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe even billions of dollars in fraudulent benefits. So would you agree that this should be more of a concern for the average American, that it's something that the Biden administration maybe could profitably discuss at greater length? Yeah, I mean, I agree fully on both of those scores. I actually think a lot of, you know, average Americans are impacted by these issues in ways that we don't entirely grasp on a day-to-day basis. And obviously, you know, anecdotes are not data, but I do get a surprising amount of feedback from readers on these pieces, talking about their own, you know, interactions with fraudsters where they lose kind of a few hundred dollars here and there. and. I think one reason that this has not become kind of the prominent issue that it maybe should be is that a lot of these financial frauds are very effective because they're sort of crude and they take kind of a, what we quote unquote small amount of money from a lot of people and several hundred dollars maybe. And you know, to, to people in the political class or the legal profession and in the journalistic class, that is not a lot of money but it is a lot of money to like 40% of the population, which cannot manage a, a loss of like $400 without going into debt under, under ordinary circumstances. Now, right. things have gotten worse, presumably, under the pandemic. But, you know, I think the sort of the harm that the sort of average person suffers from these scams is not really reflected by the level of attention these issues get in the media or the like. And, but, well, here's a very interesting example. I had someone a while back um, talk talking to me about sort of identity fraud issues and mentioned that like they're kind of victimless. Maybe it's a couple hundred dollars worth of, you know, charges you incur as a result of an identity theft crime that you that you suffer. 
but of course, A, that can be a lot of money to a lot of people. Mm. B, it can take a lot of time to fix an identity fraud issue. I fortunately have never been the victim of it. It probably will happen someday. But, you know, you've got to deal with credit cards, you've got to deal with banks, stuff like that. But yeah, the fraud that you mentioned on the state unemployment agencies is operating based on stolen information through identity theft scams, right? So what these people have done from overseas who are hacking into the state unemployment agencies, or not hacking, I shouldn't say, they're, they're submitting and uh, getting approved applications for unemployment benefits using other people's stolen identifying information, right? So in a way, this kind of has come full circle, like from the, the petty, quote unquote, petty identity theft crimes to like, scaling those uh, that up to this massive fraud on the government. Um, so, you know, I hope that these issues get more attention. Certainly in Congress, Democratic um, uh, senators and representatives have expressed more interest in these issues. But, um, you know, I think the public and I guess we'll call it sort of elite Democratic politicians and commentators and liberal legal commentators have been more interested, I think, under this administration with the sort of more prominent kind of corruption issues surrounding like the president. You know, Michael Flynn, Roger Stone, Russia, things like that. And I think what you're going to see, for instance, the Center for American Progress put out a report with some recommendations saying basically like we need to fix a whole bunch of the lines of communication between the professional and the political strata uh, at the Justice Department and the White House. So I think there's going to be a lot of attention paid to those sorts of issues on a reactive basis. And I think it will sort of remain to be seen, you know, if Biden is elected, what his Justice Department would do about sort of the broader white collar issues. I'm cautiously optimistic, but I think it's legitimately unclear sure. at the moment. Yeah. Well, I guess, um, as you said, maybe if there were fewer distractions with Russia and, and some of the former Trump administration members, they might be able to concentrate their efforts a little bit more on some of these really pressing issues. So I, I remain cautiously optimistic with you. Well, so you know, I have I, actually a, well, this is, this is something I've not said publicly before, but okay. you know, there is a, there is an incentive problem <laughs> amongst the legal punditry class. Mm. And this is not to disparage anyone who does it. I guess I sort of do it, but one reason those issues, I think, tend to occupy a disproportionate amount of detention among the legal commentator class is because it's a much easier way to get on television, mm. for better or worse. And so there's this unfortunate sort of feedback loop. I am not sure, candidly, day to day, how much people really care about, you know, Roger Stone, Michael Flynn, that sort of thing. I've written about those issues. I care about them. But you know, I just don't know if the media attention and the political attention is an adequate or, or accurate proxy for overall public attention. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I wanted to ask a question a little bit related to what we were talking about before with Barr and Sessions focusing their efforts as attorneys general on some of the issues that were important to them. So for Sessions, for example, Enforcement of marijuana was an important issue to him. Illegal immigration with Barr. It's some of the more politically advantageous cases for Trump that have occupied his attention. 
And you wrote in the New York Review of Books that those are examples of the Trump administration ruling by law. And again, correct me if I'm not characterizing this correctly, but by that you meant, unlike a traditional authoritarian regime, which doesn't follow the law at all, just disregards the law, the Trump administration and and Bill Barr's Department of Justice have selectively applied the law to cases that are politically advantageous for them. Can you explain a little bit more in your own words this argument? You put it, you put it pretty well. <laughs> um, I, I think that's okay. a fair summation. I, I, you know, I think there are a couple of sort of legal paradigms that I think at the extreme that we understand when we think about a legal system, right? One is the authoritarian regime, as you said, they're not really using law at all, right? They're not constrained by law. Think of like Nazi Germany, right? In the, in the most yeah. egregious form, right? And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have this sort of a platonic ideal of kind of a rule, rule of law, right? And this is stuff, you know, I'm sure you and your colleagues are learning about. It's stuff I learned about when I was in law school and it's helped me in very good stead. But, you know, that aspiration, right, to, to a, a society governed rule by rule by law is, a, a, is an aspiration to a society that has the equal application of laws, laws that we know about, that we understand, that are intelligible, that we are all treated equally under, irrespective of our financial position, our political position, our political affiliations. And, you know, as I was looking back over a lot of these cases like Flynn, Stone, E. Jean Carroll's case, the, the government's intervention in that defamation case, John Bolton is being pursued criminally for uh, disclosing classified information in his book. You know, a lot of people have said that this is kind of politicization of the Justice Department. I find that term not terribly helpful because law enforcement is inherently political on some level. And right. And it should be political on some level, at least directionally, right? Not at the level of you know, individual cases. So I, I think the rule by law concept, which is one that has been developed more recently, or at least systematically in some of the literature, basically posits that you, know, you have a, a society where law is an instrument of the state, right? They're using it to achieve their objectives, to control the public, to promote, protect themselves and the political allies. But they themselves are not subject to those same constraints, right? We cannot hold our political leaders accountable under the law in the way that they hold us accountable under the law. And so I, I can give you a, a good example if it, if it would help. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that the best example of sort of this juxtaposition is if, if you look at the Michael Flynn case, right? Michael Flynn, as I'm sure folks know, uh, was the former national security advisor. He was prosecuted for lying to FBI officials in connection with an interview stemming out of the Russia, you know, the early stages of the Russia investigation. And he pled guilty. And earlier this year, Bill Barr moved to dismiss that charge. Now he pled guilty uh, in a prosecution that was being handled by uh, Mueller prosecutors and that was spun out of the Mueller investigation. But after they shut down, Barr and the political, uh, political folks at the Justice Department intervened to move to dismiss the charge. Now, the theory that they had was that Flynn's lies could not have been material to any ongoing investigation because there was a draft FBI document that indicated that they wanted to shut the investigation down, right? On its face, this was an extremely aggressive, highly, highly unusual theory. 
I, I think it's very fair to say unprecedented, right? I think a lot of commentators have looked for precedents and come up short. I have never been able to come up with one. So there you have Michael Flynn being the beneficiary, you know, obviously a political ally of a very selective application of the law. Now, the reason this will probably work is not because the government is right about the materiality analysis, but because the rule that governs whether or not the, go the government can dismiss charges in a pending criminal prosecution is, it remains to be seen, the case is ongoing, but is likely going to be interpreted as being highly deferential to the government. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I think most people think that the kind of proper interpretation of the rule is essentially if the government has a good faith, plausible explanation for why it wants to dismiss a case, the case is going to be dismissed by the approval of the court. So the, the, now I don't think that there's this is a good faith <laughs> explanation. I've written about that. Right. But I was going to suggest I think that. that. Yeah. The mechanism has worked, though, because they picked this rule that probably will allow them to achieve the, the objective that they wanted, even though the underlying analysis, as I said, the materiality analysis that they use is extremely questionable. Now, mm -hmm. that's Michael Flynn. So you contrast him with this fellow, Kevin Kleinsmith. Are you familiar with him at all? Not so much. So I think his name has flown under the radar. So Kleinsmith was an FBI attorney who was working on the Russia investigation, who had some responsibility for preparing the FISA surveillance warrants that were used to surveil Carter Page, right? A uh, sort of third tier right, Trump foreign right. policy advisor. Now, at some point, now the, the facts are a little convoluted. I would say essentially he altered an email that was used as evidence to obtain one of the, the FISA warrants against Carter Page, but he altered it in a way that he believed was accurate and that may have actually been accurate. Now, so this is an extremely unusual fact, fact pattern, right? <laughs> but, you know, in that case, the government took a very aggressive, right? The same Justice Department took a very aggressive view of whether or not this was a material misrepresentation. And I think it was, I think actually the, the criminal charge is warranted, but a lot of very smart people have sort of come out the other way or have been had serious questions about it because the, the argument goes, you know, could the misrepresentation have been material if it was accurate, right? Now, the problem with this argument is that the altering of the email kind of, kind of blows it up to my mind. But I think if you just juxtapose those cases, right, you have Michael Flynn being the beneficiary of an extremely generous analysis under the law and this former FBI lawyer, Kevin Kleinsmith, who was kind of a bit of an administration antagonist, getting treated the exact opposite. Right. It's tough to reconcile. So are there long-term implications to, to this? I mean, can we expect, do you, I guess I should say, do you think a precedent has been set for future attorneys general to pursue this same approach to cases like this? That's a really good question. I think so. I mean, I think so. Unfortunately, I mean, th I think you know one of the one of the things about kind of the uh, executive power historically, right, is that when it expands, it's like creating another tool that's in a toolbox, right, and right. opening up a set of possibilities that didn't previously exist. So, and the wrench, if you will, on a kind of executive power historically, it only goes one way, 
Um, it only really expands, generally speaking. So, you know, th that isn't to say like, okay, let's say Biden comes in. I would not expect behavior like this under a Biden administration for a variety of reasons. But who's to say, you know, under another administration with similar interests or similarly sort of unscrupulous people, they're, I'm sure they're going to point, be pointing back to things like this and say, look, you know, this has been done before. You know, we remain to be seen on Flynn, but I think they will succeed. You know, we can dismiss a case against political allies for any reason. It doesn't really matter. So, you know, I think the question of whether it's kind of a precedent is an interesting and a complicated one. I don't think it's going to be linear, right? I don't think we're going to see the Justice Department behaving like this consistently over time. I think it's going to change based on, you know, who we have at the helm. But as I said, you know, to the extent that these tools get legitimated and courts approve them or feel compelled to approve them, those are tools that go into the toolbox for another administration another day. Right, right. And uh, with many appointees to the federal judiciary being Trump appointees, do you think these tools are tools that are going to get and enjoy judicial approval for quite a long time? Yes, yes. And I think that's a real, that's a real astute observation. And I think it's one that, you know, we haven't really even begun to grapple with yet. Um, just because so many of these judges are just beginning their tenures on the bench. But, you know, I think we have seen already some indications that, you know, some of these judges on the bench, as it appeared from their qualifications, are strongly politically oriented and that their, you know, legal analyses are sort of geared toward political ends. I think there have been a number of kind of recent rulings by some of these quite young and quite inexperienced lawyers sure, and now yeah. judges that have endorsed legal analyses that the president's justice department has put forward that I, I think are very, very questionable. Right. Right. Well, I have to remain cautiously optimistic. I could keep talking about this for a while, but we should probably wrap up. I want to thank you so much for coming to join us today. It's been a really enlightening and fascinating conversation. I guess I, I want to just pose one final question. Uh, what would you say to law students today, such as myself, 1Ls, 2Ls, 3Ls, considering careers in the Department of Justice who might feel a little bit discouraged by some of the activity we're seeing today? Oh, gosh. I, I think it will get better. I really do. I, I think, you know, I'm, you know, uh, hopeful that Trump gets removed from office. Certainly the trend line seems to be pointing in that direction as far as the polls. And, you know, I think that we're going to, at least I hope, and there are people, uh, commentators, politicians who are looking uh, into kind of a retrospective effort to kind of restore some of the integrity and, and professionalism of these agencies. I hope we will see some of that under a Biden administration. I think it's still, it's still a great job. I mean, I think, you know, you, you, people should be thoughtful, even if they're entering a justice department where they don't agree with the politics about the work that they're doing and kind of making the best of it and making sure that they do it in a way that does not compromise uh, their integrity or their ethical compass, whatever it may be, and wherever you may be on the political spectrum. This is not, you know, a question that's only about, you know, liberal lawyers, liberal law students and the like. I mean, it's, it's one right. that, you know, young conservative lawyers and prosecutors have to consider as well. And, uh, I, and I know that can be a difficult one. I mean, I, I will tell you candidly when 
I started at the Justice Department before Trump. And after he took office, I was extremely taken aback, demoralized, very upset about it, mm. um, didn't know what to expect. And, you know, I had a very kind colleague of mine, former colleague of mine, who has been in the profession for a long, long time. She spent a long time in the Justice Department under Reagan and other, under other administrations. And she reached out to me. She kind of said, I know this looks bad. <laughs> I know this feels bad. <laughs> it looks bad. Trust me. Like most of your work will not change and most of your work you're going to feel proud to do and happy to do. And so, you know, even though I think this justice department is very troubled and even though I hope that there's a serious, serious reform effort that is undertaken in, in a future administration, it's still the case that most of the work the department does, everyone should be proud about everyone like the line attorneys. It's still the case that it's a great job where you can do a lot of good, and, you know, I would say to the people who feel like the most qualms about entering the Justice Department, where maybe the sort of outward kind of political views don't align with their own political views or their own ethical standards, it's almost more important for those people to <laughs> enter the Justice Department, notwithstanding that, because mm. we need people who are not politically pliable, who don't, you know, shift with the winds of the political Absolutely. Uh, yeah. apparatus, and who remain, because Every lawyer is, every prosecutor is an independent moral and ethical agent. At the end of the day, you are on the hook for what you do. It is not enough to have been taking orders or the like. So, you know, the people who have these sorts of questions, which are very understandable, are probably the sorts of people we want to see in these jobs. Right, right. Well, I think that's a great, great optimistic note to wrap this podcast up on this. The first episode of the Issue Spotter podcast. So thank you so much again, Ankush, for, for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Of course.